Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Winston Preparatory School is a leading school network for students with learning disabilities. Learn more about Winston Prep and register for an open house at www.winstonprep.edu. And welcome back to the show. What a privilege for me. Dr. Christine Schapter is with us in studio. Dr. Christine Schapter is a healthcare provider, notably starting as a nurse and then becoming a psychiatrist, which is a really beautiful journey. Uh, I got to know her because she is what we call a court-appointed independent psychiatrist because the law of the state of Connecticut says that if you're going to commit somebody to stay in a psychiatric hospital against their will, that not only do you need the opinion of their treating psychiatrist in the hospital, but you need the opinion of two independent psychiatrists who don't get paid, who have nothing to do with the hospital itself. And uh, Dr. Christine Schapter is one of a handful of psychiatrists who travels around the state of Connecticut willing to testify in these proceedings. That's how I've gotten to know her. I will say, as a human being, uh, she is extraordinarily sensitive and wise. She was just honored in the Supreme Court building by the entire probate court association in an assembly in April. And I didn't even know you were being honored. I was so happy to see you there, Dr. Schapter. Um, you and I have spoken at length about some of the systemic things that we think could be improved in the system, but I really wanted as a part one for people to get to know you. Hello and welcome to the show today. Good morning. Good morning. So Dr. Schapter, first of all, a nurse and then a doctor. Tell us about that. Okay, so... A little bit, um, yeah. Well, I actually started as a cellist um, at New England Conservatory. Um, I always say that an angel came to me in a dream and told me to be a nurse. My mother was a nurse. My father was a physician, so... Um, I did. I left music school and I went to become a nurse. And so... Do you still play the cello? I do. Oh. I do. When I have time. Wow. Okay. Um, So then um, I was a nurse for about 15 years. I was working with um, Dr. George Perdrize, who is now director of the Wound Center at Hospital of Central Connecticut. He was my mentor. And... um, I just really admired everything that he that he was doing, and I was learning from him, and I really wanted to be a doctor. So he put me um, in charge of the student fellows, the, the pre-college, like the pre-med students, the college students. Um, and there was one wonderful student who said, you know, asked me to read his, his college or his medical school um, essay. So I did, and I started to cry because he talked about having medicine be a calling. 
And I said, I really, really want to do this. And it was that student, he was probably 21 years old. He's now a surgeon in Oregon. He said to me, why don't you just do it? And I said, you know what? How old were you? I was 38. Okay. Were you on the older side in med school? Oh, absolutely. I was you the oldest. You were the oldest. I was the oldest. Yeah, but you're not old. No, certainly not. So I ended up, um, you know. You went back to med school. Right. So I had to do a post back. You had to take your MCATs. I had to take a, take my MCATs after I did a post back. Um, oh, I you taught, had to do a post. In other words, you had to do another degree to make up for the uh, deficits in your original undergrad degree. Yes. Wow. A lot had changed, so I did a post back program. Then I went to medical school. Yeah. And so then, um, where'd you go to medical school? It was UConn. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then I went to um, the Institute of Living for my residency. So you always knew you wanted psychiatry. No. I actually thought that I was either going to do surgery or anesthesia, um, but I had this wonderful mentor during my psychiatry uh, rotation. I just loved him. Um, we really talked about psychological theory, and he was—he had worked with children, but he had also worked with veterans, and that's what—that's yeah, what it was. Absolutely. Was anybody, were your mother, your father, any of them particularly psychiatrically bent in terms of their work? So um, my father actually was a primary care physician, but in his retirement, we joked that he had about three retirements, um, kept going back to work. So in in one of his retirement jobs, he actually went to work at the Institute of Living, which is where I trained. So talk to us. People don't know what the Institute of Living is. The Institute of Living is one of the oldest psychiatric hospitals um, in the country, actually. Um, and it, it really was a game changer in terms of psychiatric care. So it was previously um, psychiatric patients were um, very much abused, and they really had a, a very different model. Um, it's on Retreat Avenue, and they really called it the retreat. Um, they It was really focused on um, wellness and making people better and trying to understand. Now, that does not mean that there was not some barbaric things that happened in you know the early days. Um, but certainly, um, they were the ones that really modernized. Um, are they part care. of Hartford Hospital? Now? They are now part of Hartford Hospital. Okay, so that's marvelous. So, when did you end up being a psychiatrist? How long have you been practicing psychiatry? So, I graduated from medical school actually in 2014. Okay, and then I graduated from residency in 2018. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and what you do in the system so just to reiterate we're chatting with Dr. Christine Chapter at 203-333-9422 if you have a question about severe mental illness she's the gal to talk to uh, but Dr. Chapter you've chosen to carve out a niche in your own profession that is greatly needed in the state and that is to testify in these commitment proceedings around the state in person not on the phone in person which is very valuable to me as a judge and um and why did you decide to do that? So, actually, when I was a when I was a resident, um, I had a friend who, from my nursing days, who was doing probate work, and I asked him about it, and just you know sparked my interest. But it was actually right after graduation that a friend of mine who was doing a forensic fellowship said, "You know, we really need people to do these evaluations." And I said, "I would absolutely love to." So I started my first evaluation in January of 2019. And since that time, I've been appointed to over 1,500 cases. A lot um, of them by me, by I, the way. <laughs> I absolutely love the work. It's it's my favorite work. 
Um, it allows me to have a relationship with a patient that's very different from the traditional treating psychiatrist role. Um, one, they're scared. Two, I can be educational. Um, and I know all these patients because, unfortunately, when you have a serious persistent mental illness, you tend to be hospitalized frequently. So you go from hospital to hospital to hospital. So in the case that we had yesterday, that was my fourth evaluation of that particular patient. Frequently, I Who see Who I did not get to meet because he chose not to attend the hearing. That's right. So I have to rely on you. Right. So, th- you know, typically I, could, I have three or four evaluations of that person. And that helps a lot. It does help. It does, because history is significant. Right. Right? And even with our electronic medical record, a lot of times we don't have the history that we want to, or it's the, the, the record is so big that no one can actually... Make heads or tails of what's exactly. real. Exactly. It's true. So I It's have too it much in information. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not the right kind of information. So we're chatting with Dr. Christine Schapter. Uh, Dr. Schapter, we're going to be right back, and we're going to talk about some of the things that you and I are seeing pretty frequently that we want to address. We'll be right back. So we're getting to know Dr. Christine Schapter. We're going to get into it right now. Dr. Schapter, what are the illnesses that typically have people hospitalized in a psychiatric ward? So it's um, really severe, persistent mental illness. Um, so, for, of course, schizophrenia spectrum disorder, and that includes something called schizoaffective disorder, which is schizophrenia with a mood component, schizophrenia. We also have um, severe bipolar dis- disorder and severe depression. Um, these are the, the disorders that you would be hospitalized for. And and we have a catch-all in Connecticut that says that people can be hospitalized against their will if they are either dangerous to themselves or others or what we call gravely disabled. Um, and also the hospital has to be the least restrictive setting for them to be at. So in other words, they may in fact be gravely disabled, but if they could theoretically be treated outside a hospital setting, we're not supposed to be committing them. Uh, what would what would you tell me that you know um, that people with schizophrenia Tell me a little bit about the disease of schizophrenia, Dr. Schapter. Tell me a little bit about it. So schizophrenia is is actually, in many ways, a, a disorder of, of cognition. Um, there's there's several different criteria um, that we utilize to, to diagnose schizophrenia, but it's really one of abnormal perception. Um, so it could be that you're having hallucinations, and that's Primarily auditory hallucinations, but you can have visual hallucinations, tactile. You can even touch. think they're smelling things. Right. Yeah. Right. Olfactory, smelling. Um, also delusions. So you're perceiving the world differently or you're perceiving um, they could be paranoid. They could be grandiose. You think you're fabulously wealthy. Or you have 20 children or you're the pharaoh. Right. Exactly. Um, or that people Jesus are Christ is a you. common one. Yes. A bunch of people think they're God. Right. They do. Um, and then, um, you know, and certainly the third criteria is disorganized speech. But what it's really disorganized speech is indicative of a disorganized thought process. Um, and this is where somebody's talking to you and you're, you're listening to them and not really understanding what they're saying. It's because their speech is so disorganized or it's going on tangents or it's going around and around in circles. And it's very dizzying. Um and then there's other um, symptoms of schizophrenia um, that are called negative symptoms. And these are when 
Um, you have maybe apathy. Um, well, apathy to an extreme. Right. Like exactly. they stop eating. Right. They stop bathing. Right. Right. And something called affective flattening, which is where you're not having an appropriate emotional response for something that's going on. Um, so, for example, you're about to be committed to a psychiatric facility, and you don't have really a strong reaction to that. And it's just really a, a function of the schizophrenia. It's a little bit harder to treat than those other symptoms like the hallucinations and the delusions. Negative symptoms actually sometimes can get worse with treatment. Um, so it's And negative symptoms... So it's our positive symptoms, say agitation or aggression, that's going to get the attention of people. I see. But the negative symptoms, you know, they're hanging out in the room, not bothering anybody, right? But these are the symptoms that actually really pretend poor functioning in the community because they're not able to To care for their basic needs. Absolutely. Right. Right. It's very sad. I think schizophrenia is the saddest disease. You know, we have a a wonderful doctor at uh, St. Vincent's Behavioral Health. His name is Dr. Germain. And I'll never forget, he told me once as we were standing outside the building, he said, do you see any pavilions here named after people for the people with schizophrenia? I said, no. He goes, exactly. It's It's a disease with a stigma. People will put their names on a cancer pavilion. Absolutely. They will put their names on a heart, on a heart, you know, uh, extension, right? But nobody wants to have their name after somebody with schizophrenia. And I thought that that was such a profound observation. It stayed with me because it is a disease that is an orphan disease in, the, in every possible way. Right. Right. And we see this in the hospital. So patients with any kind of serious persistent mental illness frequently don't get the medical care that they require because it's considered just psych. But we know as psychiatrists, we know acutely that patients with um, serious persistent mental illness really do actually have more medical comorbidities. Our medications cause medical comorbidities. Their um, poor attention to their health causes poor, um, you know, poor, poor uh for physical health, right, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And very often, for a lot of reasons, if they are friendly faces, frequent flyers, whatever you want to call them, that uh, their family has gone by the wayside too. Not in all cases. No. And those who are lucky enough to have devoted family are so far ahead of the game, it's extraordinary. And they do so much better. And they have such a better you know, prognosis. But many, many, many people, by the time they're in their 40s, their 50s, there's no family left. Right. And it's not just that their family has abandoned them. It's that they have, you know, paranoid perceptions about their family, and they've stepped back from their family. Very much so. Right. They don't want anything to do with them. Right. That's right. Right. 203-333-9422. Dr. Schapter, one of the things that bothers me um, as somebody in the system is that I know that a lot of people with these kinds of psychiatric illnesses are sexually aggressive. They're sexually disinhibited. They're sexually aggressive. Both. Right. And I can't find, because I don't think it exists, a psychiatric ward, much less hospital, for women. You and I, Dr. Schapter, have been in hearings where the doctors have testified that they wouldn't put their daughters in that psychiatric hospital because they would be afraid for their physical safety. Am I right? Yes, you are correct. So 
I just want to talk about you and I as members of the system, as women. Do you think that there is a need, do you think that there is a need for some kind of segregated psychiatric beds that are, are with women only? So I think that we need to have segregated psychiatric units based on, yes, gender, but also based on acuity, right? There are different types of psychiatric illnesses, right? So if you have somebody who's particularly aggressive, why are they in the same unit as somebody who's elderly, somebody who's female, somebody who's vulnerable, somebody who can't protect themselves? And the staff do their best. Oh, they do their best. They get assaulted half the time as well. They also get assaulted. So it is very concerning. If you think about York, our prison, um, there's your correctional institution. Yes. That is a female-only prison. And then for the mental health prisoners um, that are male, they go to um, Garner Correctional Institution. So in many ways, you know, and I think it's a matter of resources, but it makes sense to me that the prisoners would be in different prisons. And what you're saying is when people are psychiatrically compromised before that they're stable on meds, they resemble uh, criminals in some ways. In terms of their aggression. I'm not talking about fault or culpability. We know there's a different disease thing going on. But in terms of behavior, they can resemble criminals. Am I right? Right. And and many criminals, actually, I mean, to to call it, do have a history of mental illness. Not all. No, no. They say that the statistics are overwhelming, that if we actually surveyed the prison population, an extraordinary percentage of people have chronic mental illness. Absolutely. Severe. Severe persistent mental illness. And the problem is, you know, so we we have um, mental health in the prisons. It probably could use to be more therapeutic. And I've done many uh, commitment hearings where a prisoner is still in the middle of their sentence. And what we do is we plan to transfer them for a period of time to Connecticut Valley Hospital or Whiting, depending on their circumstances, for a period of hospitalization because the prison can't necessarily provide the level of therapy and the level of um, psychiatric treatment that they need. So they get transferred mid-sentence to a hospital like Connecticut Valley or Whiting, and then they get transferred back to the prison. As soon as they're stable. When they're stable. Right. Because here's the thing, and this you'd have to be with this population to understand it. It's like black and white. When somebody is so-called stable, it's a euphemism for being clear of thought and you think you're talking to somebody where there's nothing wrong with them, mm-hmm. but only as long as they're taking their medicine. Absolutely. And the minute they miss even a dose sometimes, I mean, even one dose, mm-hmm. we've seen dramatic decompensation. It's shocking That's in true. some cases, right? That's true. Yes. Uh, let's go to Terry. Terry, quickly from Bridgeport, did you want to speak about your cousin? Go ahead. Yeah, he's, he was paranoid when his, aunt, when his mom and dad were alive. His dad passed. His mother told me he was very paranoid. Now, this is the first time he is living on his own. He's going to be 73 in August. In his mind, there's nothing wrong with him. Where has he been living until now? And He lives by himself in a, in a home. But you said this is the first time he's living on his own. How has he lived most of his life? He's lived with his parents. And his parents just recently passed? His dad passed six years ago. His mom passed two and a half wow. years ago. And he, he hears voices that tell him he killed his mother. And 
the, the air conditioner is too loud. And I took him to a neuro, neurologist almost a month ago. We got home. He, I walk in the house. He opens the front door and starts screaming. At, I don't know who. He goes in the dining room and starts screaming at the same voice even louder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when his dad was alive, he was on medication. He stopped. Right. And his father told him, either you take the medication or get the heck out. Right. 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 Well, his without... Well, you know, Terry, Terry, without those guardrails, he is obviously a candidate for commitment at some point if if the symptoms render him gravely disabled. Mm -hmm. Because what will happen is there'll be a welfare check. There'll be a smell or an odor or something coming from his apartment. Somebody will see that he hasn't showered for a month and a half Mm -hmm. and the police will bring him in. and And then he'll be stable for a while and the cycle will begin again unless he has some kind of supervised housing. And we don't have enough of that. We're no. actually going to go over this. Yeah. Um, Terry, I want to thank you for the call. Uh, you, you raised really important issues. Uh, I'm Lisa Wexler. We're sitting here chatting with Dr. Christine Schapter. Dr. Schapter, can you stay with us another few minutes or are you running? I'm going to do here. this. Absolutely. Let's do this. Yeah, 203-333-9422. We're, cha- we're chatting with Dr. Christine Schapter. We're doing an in-depth look at... The issues, and we could we could have this conversation for hours and hours, but we're going to touch on some of the bigger issues. If you've got a family member or somebody with this kind of problem, paranoid schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder that, you know, has really gone into a very deep psychiatric illness or even severe depression, you can pick up the phone and call us. The telephone number is 203 203- Three 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 nine four two two. That's two zero three 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 nine four two two. We're going to do news, weather, and traffic at the top of the hour. We're coming back with Dr. Christine Schapter, psychiatrist, when we return. So we're getting to know Dr. Christine Schapter. We're going to get into it right now. So it's have you funny. ever advocated, Dr. Schapter? I mean, you are you're now at Waterbury Hospital, right? Yes, I am. And you're a member of the staff there. Yes, I'm the director of inpatient psychiatry. Okay. So, and do they have a big psychiatric uh, unit? So we have a 30-bed psychiatric bed. unit. So are you advocating at Waterbury that there be some kind of separation or segregation depending on the condition or the gender? So we do. Um, it's not based on gender. We do try to, we have different parts of the unit. So we don't have different units. Um, so a bigger psychiatric hospital, like, say, the Institute of Living, has different units. Um, we have one 30-bed unit, but we do have certain patients in one area um, that are maybe more aggressive, other patients that are, we do try to... You do try and do that. We do try to segregate them based on... It's not really segregation, per se. It's it's more kind of like separating out um, based on um, their type of illness or their, their current condition. And their symptoms, right? frankly. And then you can always move somebody when they're starting to take meds. You can step them down to another piece as soon as they start to get well. Right. We're chatting with Dr. Christine Schapter. What many people don't know in Connecticut, just let's talk a little bit about the law for a moment, is that you can be compelled to take medicine against your consent. I mean, most people don't know that. You can. Um, there are very stringent requirements that happen before that happens. But you can be forced to be, you know, cuckoo's nest. You can be forced to be strapped down and get a shot of something that will calm you down or begin to address your psychosis, even if you don't want to. Uh, you can do that only in a hospital. You can't be forced to do it unless you're already committed to a psychiatric hospital. 
Um, and you can't do it unless a whole bunch of doctors think that you have to be able to do it. I mean, there are a lot of doctors along the way, at least three for the med proceeding alone, and then two independent ones and the treating one for the commitment. So typically, at least five or six doctors have looked at you before this can happen, right? That's a, that's a lot of doctors. Plus, you need a judge to agree, right? And plus, there has to be a conservator who's another independent person who has to say, you know what, I've listened to all the testimony and I agree this person needs meds even though they don't want to take it. So there are a lot of safeguards, but there is a mechanism in Connecticut to force people to take medicine if they don't want to. You just have to jump through a lot of hoops to do it. Right. And that's because people have civil rights, so we understand that. Right. Yeah. We're chatting with Dr. Christine Chapter. We'll be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We have the privilege of having Dr. Christine Schapter in, in studio with us, so we're going to continue with this conversation. Dr. Schapter is a psychiatrist. She practices throughout our state and very often is a consulting independent psychiatrist in many legal proceedings involving commitment at 203-333-9422. Dr. Schapter, what are we seeing in the way of pot, weed, marijuana, cannabis, you name it? What are we seeing? Well... It's a really challenging and controversial subject. Um, certainly, um, we've been seeing a lot of increase in psychosis, um, particularly since the advent of both medical marijuana. Right. Medical marijuana does not make it safer. And then also um, legalization of marijuana. It's been very, very challenging. All right. You know what? I would really like to take that and make it a commercial and have everybody hear it, but nobody seems to be listening. <laughs> um, okay. And you say increase in psychosis. Please explain to the layman what is psychosis. So the psychosis is what we talked about previously, which is the delusions, the abnormal perception, hallucinations, um, paranoia. This Break with one. reality. Break with reality. Break with reality. Right. They just do not see the world the way we see the world. Uh, they think people are coming after them. They think their food is poisoned. I mean, let's be very specific, yes. right? right? The food is poisoned. There's somebody bugging the wall inside the wall, so they have to dig the wall out and expose all the wires because that's what the pe police will find when they come to these people's homes. Mm -hmm. They'll find no sheetrock. They'll just find the wires because the people compulsively believe that someone is trying to listen to them within the walls or they won't eat for days or days or what they will eat will be like a sample of mayonnaise or something that they're mm -hmm. convinced in a closed packet is the only thing that they can ingest. Mm -hmm. So you're talking paranoid to the point where it makes you disabled, where you can't function. Right. Okay. And, um, and then, of course, they also very typically don't think that their mother is their mother. Their father is not their father. They are not the person that you call them by name. Excuse me, I'm not that person. That is not my mother standing in the room. Right. I have no idea who she is. Right? Right. That's, That's what, what psychosis is. Right. 
That's what that's what it is to be psychotic. And to see these people and to see cannabis abuse as a contributing factor so often, Dr. Schapter, I really think alarm bells need to go out in our community. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. And it's not just, I mean, I, you know, when when we were in college, people smoked marijuana, right? Every, you know, I guess so. Right. It's not my right. thing. It was not yeah. my thing either. But, I mean, you know. Yes. But it's not the weed of many years ago, right? It's it's a different concentration. So one of the things that's happened is in – so just to back up a little bit, our bodies have something called the endocannabinoid system. This is – if you activate the system, you can decrease inflammation, decrease pain. Um, this is where people are using CBD products and can really have a lot of decrease in anxiety, decrease in pain, decrease in inflammation. That we know. Then there's THC, right? So that's CBD. So THC is the psychoactive component of marijuana. And that, the concentration and the ratio of CBD to THC is changing. So, one, a lot of the newer products, the vape products, the edibles, that sort of thing, um, the THC concentration is much, much higher. We're talking about sometimes up to 95 to 100% THC. And these are the things that are causing the problems. On the other hand, the CBD concentration is decreasing, right? Because as you have a concentration of one substance, another substance. So the ratio of TB, or THC rather to CBD is increasing, which is really where the problem is. And medical marijuana is part of this. This is not just, you know, when I was a resident, I remember having this one young kid who had been smoking pot And he was one of the more psychotic people that I had ever seen. And at that point, our theory was was that he had smoked marijuana that had formaldehyde with it that was laced. Now a lot of the the marijuana you get on the street does have fentanyl and that sort of thing cut cut into it. It's very dangerous. Um, But it's not just things that are, you know, marijuana that's contaminated, it's actually that the concentration of marijuana marijuana itself is really getting more and more potent. And it's really causing a lot of problems, especially in our teenagers. And there is, you know, years ago, I think it was um, in 1995, in JAMA Psychiatry, they they printed an article that in 1995, approximately 2% of the cases of schizophrenia were attributed to marijuana. And then in 2010, it was 6 to 8%. But now, you know, who knows? And I'm going to guess you, it's a lot more. I can tell you from what I see. Anecdotally, what you and I see is that nearly every single person has test positive for cannabis. That are That's going into the hospital. Going into the hospital. I mean, that is just, we have to just pause and say that our young people and our politicians have been sold a bill of goods about the neutral or even beneficial aspects of marijuana. Mm-hmm. They've just been sold a bill of goods mm-hmm. because there's a lot of money in it now. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of societal angst about having put people in jail for it now. And, you know, going back to our conversation about what America does with the pendulum, I don't think we wanted anybody to go to jail anymore mm-hmm. for it, right? No. But why didn't we just leave it decriminalized for a while? Why did we have to go and make it absolutely legal for everyone? Mm-hmm. We could have made it an infraction. We could have said, we don't really approve of it that much, but we don't want you to go to jail for it. But Mm -hmm. the jury is out on whether or not you should use it. So Mm -hmm. let's leave it alone. Mm -hmm. 
We didn't do that. No. And we haven't really dedicated the amount of research, right? If you think about what goes, if you're bringing a new drug to market, how much research goes into it? We didn't, we didn't do that due diligence with marijuana. Let's go to Andy from Derby. Andy, go ahead, please. Lisa, shalom. Shalom. Um, Doc, I'm wondering, how does THC affect people with ADHD? Well, it depends. Um, you know, certainly ADHD is, is a, one of my... Um, I love it. I love treating people with ADHD, truthfully, because I think that it's a it's a, a much a disease with much broader implications than just concentration. Um, so the typical treatment of ADHD is going to be um, st- stimulants, but also um, working on organization and that sort of thing. And um, if you're a child, working with the family. Um, so THC, how does it affect ADHD? I mean, it would be paradoxical, no? Wouldn't it tend to make them more uh, anxious rather than calm? Yes, it actually could make you more anxious because really what you're doing is you're really slowing down the brain with THC or, or activating other areas of the brain um, versus um, what you need to do with um, ADHD. So that's really interesting. It's a good question, Andy. And I, you know why I like the question? I want to spend a little more time on it, Dr. Schapter, if you don't mind. Because a lot of people with ADHD inside their bodies, they feel anxiety mm-hmm. and they, they believe they, and they experience that when they smoke weed, mm-hmm. that they feel like they have less anxiety, at least temporarily. So talk to us about that, that experiential feeling that makes them mm-hmm. want to have more and more weed. What's happening really to their body? Well, so anytime Speak you take a little louder any tor- sort of substance, right? Yeah. whether it's alcohol, whether it's a psychiatric medication, whether it's a blood pressure medication, you're going to have an immediate effect. And then you're going to have, as the drug wears off, you're going to have what we call a rebound, right? So that's any medication, any drug, any alcohol that happens. So of course... When you take a medication, um, even like a benzodiazepine like Ativan, yes, your anxiety is going to decrease, right? But then the, the downstream effects are that when that Ativan wears off, you're going to have um, an increase in anxiety. So, yes, so marijuana may decrease someone's anxiety, but then when it wears off, it's going to worsen the situation. I don't think people know that. I think that they think mm-hmm. that, and I, th- I frankly, I believe that a lot of doctors have handed out medical marijuana cards for people with ADHD. What's that about, doctor? Well, so one of the things about the medical marijuana, right? So before, let's talk about before we had the legalization mm-hmm. of marijuana. So there were a list of conditions. We're just talking Connecticut right now. Yeah, That's where okay. I know. So there were a list of conditions. And the doctor that certified somebody for medical marijuana only had to verify that that person had that con- one of those conditions. Right. It wasn't necessarily that they were prescribing marijuana. They were just saying, diagnosing them with one of these things based on whether it was past history or whether their own diagnostic interview, certifying that, yes, they have a condition that um, qualifies for medical marijuana, and then... Um, give you know, then they can get a card, and then they can go to a dispensary. Um, but then what happens on the dispensary level it was always unclear to me. I don't know if there's. I know that there's people that do recommend. There's people that are well more versed in what marijuana and what what things do than I am. 
um, that we're making recommendations, but still it's not like the person that's diagnosing the, the patient with a condition is the one that's actually recommending the treatment. That's really interesting because for everything else that we, that's really interesting, Dr. Schapter, because normally if a doctor says to you, you need a medicine, they're prescribing the medicine and the dose of the medicine. And what you're saying is for medical marijuana, there's sort of been a break in that. There is a break in that connection. It's really that you're verifying a condition and then, and hopefully the people that are doing certification for medical marijuana know something about medical marijuana um, or, you know, effects. And like I said before, there are some effects. I mean, people who have used marijuana for chemotherapy-related nausea and poor appetite, they've done beautifully, right? Right. So there's, we can't just say... But we're talking about people with a predisposition towards a mental illness. It's a complete no-no. Right. And I don't think people know that. No, and one of the one of the challenges is that um, it's just such a big subject, right? It's just a, such a, a challenging subject. I think for years, when somebody had an addiction, if they were going to go into rehab, it was for cocaine, it was for heroin, alcohol, and we does we never went into rehab for marijuana. But now we're actually, with the increase in THC, we're actually seeing people who are actually addicted to marijuana, right? And so now we're having to change the landscape of how we manage cannabis addiction. And I just want to say that um, just as a cautionary tale, and then we have to let you go, but it's been so wonderful to have you here, um, that if you are somebody with a history of bipolar disorder, severe depression, really any kind of depression, and um, certainly schizophrenia, that taking pot is not only going to blunt the effect of the medicine that you think you're taking for your underlying condition. Isn't that true? That's what the Absolutely. doctors keep telling me. That's right. So it's, it's, it's making the medicine you think you're taking help you not help you. Mm-hmm. But it could also induce psychosis. It can make you sicker again. True. Absolutely. So you should stay away from it. (laughs) You really should. It's very common sense to me. Dr. Christine Schapter, thank you very much for being here. This is, as far as I'm concerned, a part one. We'll have to have you back. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be right back with Wayne Winston. Stay tuned. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com.